0: I will say this about him, that's it. Everything you do What learn well, I learned at 20 is Equity.
1: Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates. Just Ren here today, not Bryce. Unfortunately, we have had some uh, technical issues with the quality of our episode. Now, a little while ago, we committed to improving the audio quality of our podcast. We know it has been an issue for a while, and we thank everyone for bearing with us. Uh, look, the, the episode we recorded was just not up to scratch. Uh, I'm currently in the process of moving house. Our internet connection isn't great, and um, it was really reflecting in the episode. So, in line with our commitment of not releasing terrible audio, or at least terrible audio quality, we can't really speak to the content, um, we are going to release a one of our favourite interviews. We're going to re-release something that uh, we think new listeners to the show can get a lot out of, and people who have already listened to it will get a lot out of listening to it again. This is an interview with Jesse Felder, who is an American uh, market commentator. He used to work for a hedge fund and um, now he produces some some really interesting and insightful content on what's happening in markets. We spoke to him in December last year, so a lot has happened since then. Notably, one thing that has happened, uh, since we interviewed him, gold is up about 20% and Jesse has long been someone arguing that gold is about to take a big jump up. So, it looks like Jesse is, what well, has been proven right and is continuing to be proved right on that call. So, uh, hopefully that alone will encourage you to re-listen to the episode. Look, we are working on the audio quality. We have some exciting announcements coming up in the next couple of weeks that will drastically inc- improve the audio quality. So, Stay tuned and bear with us. In the meantime, hopefully you really enjoy this episode. And I almost forgot to mention, if you haven't already registered for one of our live shows, 23rd of October in Melbourne and 29th of October in Sydney, well then you're missing out. You're not going to want to miss this. It's going to be Bryce, myself and some of our expert equity mates, uh, talking about what's happened in markets, enjoying some free drinks and uh, getting amongst the equity mates community. So uh, you've listened to Bryce and I talk in your headphones now come and listen to us talk in person with a lot of like-minded people interested in investing and wanting to become um, yeah wanting to become better investors. So we're really looking forward to meeting you all. I hope to see you there. so you need to register, jump online or on our Instagram, or on our website. We've got links everywhere. Or if you just want to type it in, it's uh, equitymates.com slash uh, And the links will be there. So not one to be missed. So make sure you register today.
0: Equity Mines. I will say this about a Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is
2: Welcome to another episode of Equity May. It's a podcast where we will help you learn to invest in 20 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, for the very last time this year, I am joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going, bro? I'm good, Bryce, except I actually think it's the second last time this year. Oh, you always get me on the technicalities, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> well,
1: mate, come on, come on. Our listeners expect a certain, uh, certain level of accuracy.
2: This is true. For the second to last time, look. I'm obviously sad that the year is coming to an end.
1: No, uh, you can't wait for it to finish fast <laughs> enough. You're you're skipping know. one episode ahead.
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, fine. For the second last time this year, we are back on air before the Christmas break, and today we have the last interview from an expert investor for 2018, and in my opinion probably one of the better ones that we've had this year, so we're certainly going out with a bang. Would you agree, Ren?
1: Yeah, definitely. And that's not to disparage any previous guests. That's just because uh, I think we've both probably been a fan of uh, this guest for a long time. Yes. And uh, to get to speak to him was
2: pretty exciting. So, we were lucky enough to, to get uh, an hour or so with a guy called Jesse Felder, uh, an investor, uh, ex-hedge fund manager, and now blogger and uh, podcaster.
1: Should we say a, a, se- a senior member of uh, financial Twitter and uh, the financial uh, media?
2: Yes. Yes. So, he- he's done it all in finance world and is very much in line with the way we think we resonate a lot with uh, his his way of thinking and his views of the market so it was an excellent and exciting opportunity for us to sit down and um, pick his brains on a few of the topics that we've been discussing throughout the year. For those listeners that remember, we actually dissected one of his quotes uh, when he was on a podcast called The Investor's Podcast to do with uh, the buy and hold cult. And it was that episode that triggered us to get in contact with Jesse and discuss that topic a bit further. So, Ren, do you want to give the listeners a bit of a rundown on, on Jesse himself?
1: I think I think you've done a good job. If uh, people want to follow Jesse, they can jump on Twitter. He's pretty active there. He's got a website, The Felder Report. He produces research for hedge funds and high net worth individuals, uh, but he also produces a lot of free stuff that, um, that anyone can read. Uh, you can subscribe to The Felder Report's mailing list, and he's actually a fellow podcast host. He hosts a podcast... Uh, called Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom, but yeah, look, really smart guy, really interesting thoughts on the market, and uh, really enjoyed this interview.
2: So, without further ado, um, we all hope you enjoy this interview as much as we did. As Ren said, we were definitely fanboying a bit at the uh, throughout. So,
1: especially at the end, you were uh, <laughs> literally <laughs> fanboying at the end.
2: <laughs> I was. So enjoy. Well, Jesse, we always like to get uh, an understanding of where our guests have sort of come from, how they are in the position that they are today. So let's start with your very first investment. Can you remember what your very first investment was and what led you to make that decision?
0: Um, Yeah, actually, my first real investment was probably, I I can't remember which actual mutual fund was, it was probably some mutual fund right around the time when I was in college and i had saved some money and i was trying to figure out what to do with it uh and the bank sold me like a money market fund and then i wanted to do something you know more with it and but uh i actually started paper trading when i was really young i was like 9 or 10 years old something and i started actually just no i, I guess you can't really call it paper trading but i started tracking Some of my favorite companies, just the stock prices of them from week to week. I'd look in the Saturday Barons and, you know, write down, okay, Coca Cola is at this price or, you know, what have you. And so, um, I just started kind of tracking companies that I was interested in back then. Uh, but probably the first real individual stock I bought was um right around the time I first got into the industry and heard about Warren Buffett and I had to buy some Berkshire Hathaway. So that was that was probably my first individual stock. Yeah,
1: I think uh that's probably a lot of our listeners' first stock and uh it's it's a good it's probably been a good choice uh for you. Are you still holding it today?
0: No. I decided at some point that um that uh you know, I think holding Berkshire was very similar to just holding kind of like a, uh, an index fund or something, and, and uh, I can't remember when I sold it, but um, it, was, it was a while ago. Mm.
1: Now, we know, we know you have thoughts on indexes, but we'll get to that in a second. So, you started your career at Bear Stearns. What did you learn from your time on Wall Street, and are there any uh, misunderstandings that people have about the way Wall Street operates?
0: Yeah, I, I had a, a huge misunderstanding when I went to go work at Bear, and I actually, I, I never worked back east. Uh, I worked a, in the LA office, uh, and they sent me back east just to kind of meet, you know, when I first uh, got hired, just to meet the guys uh, at the main office, and they, their floor trader took me you know, on a tour of the New York Stock Exchange, which was pretty fun, and you know, that was back when the exchange was a little bit more busy than it is today, but... Um, my biggest misconception was that uh, you know I'm going to go to work for the essentially the biggest firm on Wall Street at the time. They were doing more business on the exchange than any other firm, and so this is going to be a great place to learn about how to make money in the markets. And and the guys that I went to work for at Bear, um, I, I quickly realized they weren't um, even very interested in trying to make money in the markets. They were really just trying to make money um from you know commissions and and off of their clients rather than for their clients and so for me that was kind of a big eye opener and I had no interest in becoming a salesman or anything like that so I had to find somebody to go work for who could actually teach me about the markets and um you know that's that's been my experience and I think that's a misconception a lot of people have is that wall street's there to help you make money and really wall street's number one mo is to to make money for themselves and so there's there really is just a massive conflict of interest there
2: interesting so who did you then manage to go and find that could teach you you know how to make money in the markets
0: so there was a guy um uh at bear who i I went to who was basically running kind of a hedge fund inside bear stearns um and some separate accounts and and i went to work directly for him and uh you know kind of got to see firsthand what he was doing, what his, what his process looked like. And, and, and my first real job was just running tickets to the trading desk. So that was back before we could do any trading on, on computers and we'd have to write up, a, write up a buy or sell ticket and then run it to the guys at the trading desk and they would process the trades. And so that was kind of my first job at Bear was just running those tickets. And so I got to see every buy and sell order that he was placing. Um, and then you can start to Look at the things that he's you know sitting shoulder to shoulder with him on the on the um, it, kind of like at the trading desk, so to speak in in the LA office and so I could hear every phone call I could you know watch everything see everything he was reading and and basically get a real kind of firsthand look at at uh, how you go about managing money
1: so after your time at bear you uh, you co-founded a hedge fund. What was the experience like starting a fund um, Convincing investors to uh, let you manage their money, uh, and how did it differ from your time at Bear?
0: Well, I never was on the side of raising money. I, I um, when we started the fund, there was really just four of us, and I was the uh, co or assistant portfolio manager and head trader, and the trading uh, actually took up the vast majority of my time because we we had our own broker dealer, and so. I was processing trades for two other um at least two other hedge funds and a couple other mutual funds that would run their trades through us and so we kind of did like we had our own research you know department that essentially my partner and I ran he he really did most of the work but they would pay us for research essentially by processing trades through us and so I was just basically um you know uh, running a, a trading desk by myself <laughs> for the first for the first few years, and uh, you know, then these other funds were not just buying stocks we were we were recommending, but they were pro- processing almost all of their trades through us. So this would be you know buy fifty thousand shares of SPY, you know sell one hundred thousand shares of QQQ, and just kind of that was my my six thirty you know West Coast time six thirty to one p.m. Trading day was basically just just that, um, and then so after one that was when the, was the time when I had time to kind of start doing research on my own and, and looking at uh, individual investments for the funds and, and that sort of thing.
2: So Jesse, about a decade then after you left the the hedge fund, you know we've seen that it fell apart in sort of quite spectacular fashion. Um, what was it like from your point of view watching watching something that you'd built, I guess, fall apart?
0: Yeah, you know, I was really only there for a few years. Uh and the reason I left was because I, I could I, you know, I, I hate to say I could see that coming 10 years prior, but I could I really didn't like um the the uh the mindset of my my partner and um I I really felt like he was not um as committed to doing things in an ethical manner as as I was, you know, comfortable with, and so that was really one of my main reasons for leaving. Um, and so it wasn't a surprise to me at all that it, mm. that it kind of um, happened, you know, went down that way. Um, like I said, that was that was part of the reason why I left. But I couldn't have imagined, you know, all the stuff that kind of went down after I left.
1: So Jesse, coming to uh, today and what you're doing now. You run the Felder Report, an in-depth monthly investment newsletter, and you also host a uh, Fellow Investing podcast. So, how have you found being on the media side of the financial industry? Does, has it changed your perspective at all?
0: Yeah, it's you know, it's taken me this long, you know, twenty plus years in the business to figure out this is where I want to be. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's uh, I, I think you know when you when you. You figure out what it is you love about something. Um, it, that's that's kind of a, an important uh, epiphany. It was for me, and and for me, the the side of the the business that I've always loved is the research uh, side of things. And so, to be you know uh, able to focus on that um, for me is really a blessing. And so. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's uh, I don't know. Sometimes it takes a while to figure that out. But for me, I've always enjoyed writing. I Actually, studied English in college. I didn't study any business or economics at all, and I've always uh-huh. enjoyed writing. And so, to be able to put those two together is really ideal for me.
2: So, Jesse, I just want to pick up there. Sorry, Ren. Um, if you didn't study business or economics, how did you actually end up uh, getting into the markets? Like, how did you end up at Better?
0: Um. You know, I I, they honestly, Bear really liked the fact that I wasn't. You know, I didn't have a lot of preconceived ideas um, uh, and how things should work. Uh, You know, I I even after after I left the hedge fund, I thought about getting an MBA or doing CFA or something. And and I remember, you know, um, reading uh, one of the one of the first things I did when I when I uh, came into the industry was I I went through and I read all of the the Buffett letters, um, I was reading the wall street journal, you know, cover to cover and that was another something, something else somebody told me to do, but reading, reading Buffett really was, is a, an education in itself. Mm. And, you know, he's, he's said a lot of times, you know, it's, it's funny that at business school, they teach you a lot of the wrong things and, you know, I mean, efficient market hypothesis and all these things are, you know, can be counterproductive to, um, uh, at least becoming successful in the markets the way I wanted to, um, mm. and uh, you know, and so for me, I found that I, I don't want to spend time, you know, studying co- these concepts that you know the greatest investor of all time says have little or no value, or actually can be counterproductive to your success in the market. So I, I basically just said, I, you know, I'm going to create my own curriculum, and I'm going to study Buffett and read everything I can get my hands on, and study all of the. The greats uh, in the business, um, and uh, see if I can't figure out, you know, how to put that into my own investing style.
2: Yeah, wow. It,
1: it's interesting because a lot of our listeners have come to investing late as well, and have, haven't studied it at uni. So, you know, for for those people, would you? Or, for people who are just leaving school and thinking about what they want to study at uni and are interested in a career in finance, would you say uh, go the traditional route or would you say do the go the Jesse Felder route and uh, teach yourself?
0: <laughs> I would say you know it takes a lot of uh, motivation to you know it's it's like working out, right? I mean, there are people who can go work out of the gym and get a great workout on their own. And then there are other people who really need to need a coach to motivate them. <laughs> otherwise they're yeah. going to just kind of go through a half-hearted workout in the gym and if you're super passionate about it then you will you'll you know you'll you'll learn and you'll 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 be curious enough to just kind of read through tons of stuff and you know i i think honestly um if you can go study with with one of the you know the one of the great business schools you know that uh you know maybe it's uh you know um somewhere, with, you know, that has, has a program that's, you know, dedicated to value investing in the line of, you know, great value investors, then, you know, that can make sense. But, you know, really, if you're going to spend a ton of time learning economics and all that kind of stuff, it, it has, I think, very little value overall. Uh, you know, Buffett has said you need, what, a third grade education in math, and I think most even macro investors would tell you, you just need a basic understanding of economics. Um, in order to to begin to to learn how to how to make money in these in these markets, it's 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 more about what they don't teach you in school than it is you know what what you can learn in, in school. Mm.
1: Mm. Yeah, definitely. So if if we can go back to um, financial media and your time running the Felder Report, when you think about the financial media landscape more broadly, do you think that? as an industry, we're doing a good job imp- improving our customers' financial literacy?
0: I, I think, as an industry, it's getting a lot better. Uh, I really do. I think, um, you know, to see podcasts like yours and you guys are truly curious about, you know, finding out what's true and and, how to, and, and, and really passionate, obviously, about helping people become better investors, you know, that is something that is uh, is an extremely valuable mission. To to your listeners. Uh, and I think in the past, we've seen a lot of media is not necessarily driven, you know, by such an altruistic, uh, you know, mission. It, it could be more along the lines of, right, we need to sell advertising to big Wall Street firms or what have you. So I really think, you know, especially with the new media like podcasting, um, I think it's getting a lot better.
2: Let's talk some basics, Jesse. What's something you think that beginners should understand better about markets when they start out investing?
0: Um, I think the first thing uh, that people should really understand is is rather than trying to be successful um, or you know, like hitting a home run or or you know, is is look to limit your mistakes, right? Don't fall in the same, Pitfalls that everybody else falls into because you see them classically over and over and over again. People to make the same mistakes, and uh, you know it's i, I can 't remember the exact quote, but even Charlie Munger has said you know that uh, that uh, you know he and Buffett um, you know seek most of the time to just not make mistakes and if you can mm-hmm. if you can uh, limit the number of mistakes that you make then then you're going to be way way better off than most investors and so you know, those mistakes are, you know, classically paying way too much in fees. That's, you know, that's a big one, maybe the biggest one. Um, the other ones are just, you know, being too aggressive and overconfident. And so, you know, that can be expressed in investing in something you don't really understand, you know, whether that's residential real estate during, you know, the dot com many or more recently, cryptocurrencies, Um or it could just be, you know, uh, being too aggressive in terms of something like home country bias. So, you know, here in the United States, a lot of people have, you know, big allocation to equities, which they don't understand. That is that is an aggressive um, kind of active decision right there. Uh, but then that's, you know, majority if not all invested in the United States, which, you know, home country bias is another uh, big, I think, uh, mistake that people make just being overly aggressive and not realizing that they're being overly aggressive. So I think, you know, just being overconfident, um, uh, you know, is is probably something people should, should uh, realize. There's actually a, one of my favorite quotes um, from the uh, Jesse Livermore um, book. I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's one of my favorite books. He says, the average American is from Missouri everywhere and at all times uh, Missouri is the show-me state, for those of, us, those of you guys who don't know. Uh, for, uh, from Missouri, everywhere and at all times, except when he goes to the broker's office and looks at the tape, whether it's in stocks or commodities, the one game of all games that really requires study before making a play is the one he goes into without his usual highly intelligent preliminary and precautionary doubts. He'll risk half his fortune in the stock market with less reflection than he devotes to the selection of a medium-priced automobile. Mm. And find that all the time people go into investments, they buy insurance products that are linked to investments, all these things, and they do less research than they would in buying a car mm. um, and in, in, in investment you know decisions are going to have such a much bigger impact mm. on your financial life uh, and so just having that you know normal skepticism about buying a product, about uh, you know investing in something that you don 't fully understand is is a healthy thing that people should should Um, should do. Mm, Great advice.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, very good advice and something that people who invested in crypto are probably uh, uh, taking to heart at the moment. So, those were some pieces of good advice. On the flip side, what's some of the worst investing advice you've ever heard?
0: Oh, gosh. There's there's so much bad advice out there. It's really hard to say. Uh, You know, um, I think you know, one of, there's a couple of things that just come to mind. First is, you know, when anybody tries to give you an investing advice, uh, you should really do your own homework. Um, you know, I think when that you, taking stock tips is a, is a bad idea. So just taking somebody's, you know, word for something, um, is, is not a good idea, you know, for mm-hmm. for the most part, but I think even more important than that, it's more more kind of a life advice thing in terms of career and career in the finance industry is, you know, so many people are interested in trying to find success in terms of, I want to work for somebody who's, you know, very wealthy or who's been very successful in, you know, those types of superficial uh, ways. And, and I think, um, you know, the advice I... I try and give to people is different than I got in, when I was starting out, which is uh, find somebody that you who you really admire, not just from a professional standpoint, but from a personal standpoint, and um, go learn from that person. Because if you don't admire somebody, you know, personally, not just professionally or what they've accomplished in superficial terms, um, you know, the likelihood is you're you're going to discover that they're not somebody you really want to model, anyways, and so. You know, I, I think um, you know that that advice of you know go work for the biggest firm on Wall Street or go work for the most successful guys in the business is is not not great advice. Mm-hmm.
2: You spoke about home country bias there, Jesse, and we've interviewed you know Mir Statman and a couple of other guys who who talk about behavioral investing and and behavioral finance. So of all cognitive biases that investors are influenced by, is there any one particular that you think? beginners should be focused on being aware of or watching out for?
0: Absolutely. I, th- I think one of the biggest mistakes investors make is comes back to recency bias, is looking at what has happened over the last one, three, five years and extrapolating that into, out into the future. And people mm. do that uh, in so many different cases. I mean, this is essentially what drives a bubble in any asset class is recency biases. You know, well, look what it did over the last year, last three years. It's going to do that over the next three. And people just make that assumption. And and that's really something that's deeply ingrained into our psyches is to kind of extrapolate. But but it's also, you know, very, very dangerous um, to do that because um, yeah, as you see with any, any bubble or any, um, any market, you know, markets do not just uh, trees don't grow to the heavens, right? I mean, there, there's a limit to everything. And um, if you are going to try and make that type of an extrapolation, you really need to have a very good reason for believing that something's going to continue other than the fact that it just has done so over the last five or ten, even even 40 years. Um, yeah. you know, so I, I really do think recency bias is one that's, that's probably the most dangerous
1: so, it's, um, it's probably a good time to talk about the current market, given we're just touching on recency bias, and um, we've seen uh, some pretty big valuations at the moment, and some of your writing on uh, the current state of the market, we've found very interesting, and I guess a little bit of a different perspective from the mainstream. So, to frame this discussion, uh, I want to start with an economic indicator I've heard you discuss before, and that's the total value of the stock market. Uh, against the total value of the economy, which is colloquially known as the Warren Buffett indicator. Um, can you tell us why this is an important metric and um, what it's telling us about the current state of the market at the moment?
0: Yeah, you know, back in uh, I think 99 or 2000, right, right either before or right at just after the peak of the dot-com mania, Warren Buffett wrote two different pieces for Fortune magazine. Um, and I can't remember which piece actually highlighted this measurement, but he he called it, um, you know, the, probably the single greatest single greatest measure of where equity valuations stand at any given time. And um, I think the reason that he looks at it that way is is that you know they they should have a pretty close relationship over long periods of time. The, the stock market can't grow much faster than the economy can grow. And then when you look at um, this this measure uh, and you compare it to the forward 10-year returns in the stock market, they're very, very highly correlated. And, and to me, this is the best demonstration of the Buffett quote, the price you pay determines your rate of return. So you pay a high price, you're going to get a low rate of return. You pay uh, a cheap or low price, you're going to get a high rate of return and this measurement um is just a, a perfect visual representation of that of that iron law of the markets as my friend John Hussman calls it um and so you know today this measure is essentially as high as it was at the peak of the dot com mania so it's essentially forecasting um a negative 2% return per year over the next 10 years for the stock market so um You know now uh, that that has some embedded assumptions in there that we could talk about too, if you want. But essentially, um, the stock market's only been as highly valued as it is today during the dot com mania, and then back at the nineteen
2: twenty nine peak. So, given that equity valuations now are, I guess, at reasonably historic highs, and and. The forecasting, you know, ne- negative two percent returns over next ten years. How are you practically approaching equity investment at the moment? Um, I mean, where we all have our own strategies on how we tackle this period of time. But from your point of view, what, what are you doing at the moment?
0: Well, yeah, I've, I've, you know, since the he- my hedge fund days, i I really have. Um, well, even back then, I really kind of. Uh, bought into the idea of being long and short almost all the time. Um, and so we're trying to buy things that I think are cheap and then sell short things that I think are not just expensive, but probably in a downtrend um, and have some type of a catalyst uh, for you know, the price going down over the next couple of quarters. And so, you know, I, I'm long and short um, and, you know, but for me, uh, from the standpoint of the you know the broad U.S. stock market being extremely overvalued in, in my view, I don't want to have any exposure to the U.S. stock market, uh, any net exposure or general market risk. And so, so for me, I want to be fully hedged in in some way, or another. Now, this is not to say that I'm not like finding any any good ideas on the long side. I actually. Over the last couple of years I've been finding you know a number of um, great ideas uh, on the long side so uh, you know I'm, just because i'm very cautious on the the broad market in general doesn't mean I'm not um, taking advantage of, of things that I find in fact, this is something i I try and um, tell people too is that i've never allowed my macro concerns to get in the way of micro opportunities it's it's uh, to me that's always i've always Made a mistake when I've when I've done that because uh, when I find a very compelling opportunity, um, uh, when I've allowed my when I you know allowed my macro concerns to get, get in the way, it's it's usually cost me. <laughs> you know? yeah, so, yeah. so it's something I, I just don't do.
1: So, Jesse, you said there you didn't want any uh, net exposure to the U.S. market. Um, when you look overseas, where, where do you think the greatest risk and opportunity lies?
0: Well, you know, emerging markets are are looking pretty darn cheap. They're out of favor. Um, you know, I'm I'm I really feel like my you know expertise, if I have any at all, or my real com- confidence level is is in investing in in individual U.S. U.S. equity. That's where I probably have my my greatest confidence and. Um so looking outside the US is kind of outside of my comfort zone but but to me it does look like um there's some opportunity I mean Brazil's hated Mexico's hated China's China's pretty hated um uh you know it's to me that's that's pretty interesting from from a contrarian standpoint from a valuation standpoint and then also from the standpoint that I'm I'm bearish on the dollar over the the next few years so I think uh, all those things kind of Conspire to to argue for some type of exposure to emerging.
2: So back to the U.S. Um, corporate debt levels are also at reasonably historic levels at the moment, um, and this is something you also write about. Can you explain for our listeners um, what impact this actually has for for an investor?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think it's very interesting to look at these, and and it's you know when you actually add this to like a Buffett measurement. Have you guys had Toby Carlisle on the podcast yet? Yeah, we have actually. Okay, yeah. well, Toby. <laughs> it, it, those who are familiar with Toby's work understand. You know, the acquirer's multiple. You're mm. not just valuing the equity side. You know, of a corporate, you know, corporate valuation. You're looking at it more holistically. You know, you're looking at the the balance sheet also. And so, when a company has net debt, if you're if you're a buyer of a company outright, like Warren Buffett. You're going to have to look at the balance sheet because even if you just buy up all the equity, you're still going to be on the hook for the company's net debt. Or if they you know, if they have a bunch of cash and no debt, then that cash is going to be like a rebate on your purchase price. And so you have to look at enterprise value. And, and so when you look at the, the broad U.S. stock market and you don't look at the debt side of the equation, you're kind of missing the fact that corporate America has levered up. Uh, in the process uh, over this 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 past cycle so when you look at enterprise value of the overall U.S. stock market and that's a debt and equity relative to the economy so this would be kind of like a, a modified Buffett yardstick um, valuations are higher than ever before we're, we're we're past the dot-com mania so you know to me that's that's an important um, thing to consider and and also you know where we are in the credit cycle too so leverage has gone way up um, if you study uh, Minsky, he talks about you know three different stages of the of the credit cycle, and you start out with loans that are backed by assets um, that are backed by hard assets. Uh, you know, bankers are only you know comfortable making these types of conservative loans, and then as the cycle progresses, they start lending against essentially um, you know interest coverage, lending against earnings. Then, as the cycle progresses further, you start getting into um, what he calls Ponzi-type of finance, where where lenders become comfortable giving money to companies who don't even earn enough money to pay interest on the debt. And these he called, or actually uh, he hasn't called them these, but the IMF and you know some other places have called these zombie companies. And the percentage percentage of zombie companies in the S and P 500 is higher. Um, than it's ever been. Even you know during recessions, it's something like, you know, 20% of companies in the S&P 500 today are zombies, meaning they don't earn enough money to pay interest on their debt. Minsky called this Ponzi finance. And when these companies, when the when the credit markets stop funding these companies, that's when you start seeing a uh, credit cycle turn down. And so I, I think we're possibly with the widening in credit spreads, we're starting to see over the last couple of months. We could be nearing that type of uh, that type of stage in the credit markets, and just due to the amount of leverage that's out there, and and, and then also the amount of uh, investor protections that have been removed during this cycle, um, it, it could make for a painful, pretty painful um, cycle in corporate credit.
1: Yeah, that's pretty scary. If twenty uh, percent of the S and P five hundred are these so called zombie companies, um, and I guess that probably leads quite nicely onto what might be the most controversial part of our discussion today, uh, which is the uh, passive investing, or as you've named it, the buy and hold cult. So, as, as a pod, as a podcast, and you know, over the last year and a half, uh, we've been. Pretty convinced by the underlying logic uh, around ETFs and passive investing that it's uh, that it's difficult for individual investors to achieve market beating returns over a long period of time. So maybe to start with, um, why are we wrong?
0: Uh, well, first of all, I have to say that I I, I don't think you're necessarily completely wrong. I, you know, I, I think what I'm more worried about is these types of things where you see you know an 80 year old man with 80 percent of his money in the U.S. stock market. I teach a class uh, here through the local community college um, that teaches people to build a low cost um, diversified portfolio. Um, you know, but it's but it's you know when you look at uh, you know uh, big endowments and and the most successful asset allocators on the planet they have very little exposure to us stocks and it doesn't look anything like a 60 40 portfolio it's much more diversified and so that that really is the message that i think most people need to to hear when i when i'm talking about this stuff is it's fine to use index index products but if you're just putting 100% or 90% or something in the US stock market then you you you're not passive you are actually being making a very aggressive active call on on the US stock market so i you know i i think what the way i think about this right now is george soros said stock market bubbles don't grow out of thin air They have a solid basis in reality, but reality is distorted by a misconception. And so I think we, I I strongly believe we're currently in a stock market bubble, and I think Mm -hmm. it's been driven by a couple of important misconceptions. And and the first one is, uh, and they're relative, you know, they've inspired a lot of investors to become passive investors. The first misconception is that people believe you just put your money into the U.S. stock market. And then regardless of the price you paid, you're guaranteed to make a good rate of return over a long period of time, so long as you're at least willing to hold for at least a decade. And you know, I've heard people say things like, well, there's never been a 20-year period in the U.S. stock market where you haven't you know, been made whole. Um, yeah. And so there's, there's this belief that time heals all wounds in the U.S. stock market. And that's, that's just not the case. That's a distorted reality that people believe. There have been long, long periods of time in the stock market where you made no money. And actually, there was an interesting paper that came out last year called Stock Market Charts You Never Saw. Um, And I have to give Grant's Interest Rate Observer a hat tip for for bringing this to my attention. But um, uh, in this, uh, the author, who's a Santa Clara University um, business school professor, highlights highlights these times in the markets where uh you know, long long periods of times where you, where you didn't make any money and in real terms you know before dividends he points out this is the most extreme example of this that from 1929 to 1982 53 years in the US stock market if you had held on for that 53 year period you would have actually lost 40% of your money in real terms over 53 years so these are the stock market charts that he's saying, you know, people haven't seen. And this is also, you know, goes right to that misconception. I think people believe as long as I just hold on long enough, the market will come back and time will heal all my stock market wounds. That's just not the case. in sometimes how many people actually have a 50 year time frame? Most people don't have a 50 year time frame. They have a, maybe a 20 or 30 year time frame. And there's lots, there's 20 and 30 year time frames, you know, periods in the stock market that have been very, very painful. Um, and, and he highlights these in, in the paper. And so, you know, I, I, I do think that's a misconception people have uh, about it. I, I also do believe that passive, the idea of passive investing is another major misconception that investors have. There, I, I, I contend that there is no such thing as passive investing. There's another paper that came out recently that showed that every single index is an active construction in in some respect. Uh, There is no such thing as just buying the stock market. And and I interviewed Steve Bregman Bregman about this about 18 months ago because I think he makes the best point here, which is most people don't realize that the indexes were modified just over a decade ago. So it's not just ranking stocks by market cap. It's ranking companies by float-adjusted market cap. And so when there you have companies that are run by owner-operators and the insiders own a ton of stock, their shares are not counted in that company's market cap for indexing purposes. So those companies are systematically underweighted by the index. And studies show that the, the most successful stocks in the market over longer periods of time are these owner-operated companies. So to me, passive investing today, this is one of the biggest problems is you're actively underweighting the most successful stocks in the index. I think the best example of this, if you look at the stock price of Intel, from the day it went public to the to you know, 2000, stock price went up like 1000% or something. And that was the time when Andy Grove was running the company and he owned a ton of stock. He owned like a third of the shares or something. Andy Grove retired from the company in 2000, 2001, something like that, sold off all of his stock, and Intel has, gone, has, has not regained its highs from 18 years ago since Andy Grove quit the company. And the, the passive investing would systematically have underweighted Intel while Andy Grove was running the company and went up 1,000%. And as soon as he quit the company, quit running the company and sold all of his stock, they would boost the allocation of Intel while it goes nowhere for the last 18 years, and so to me, this is this is you know the idea that that is passive is is um, is just false. First, for one, and then secondly, um, that's the last thing I'd ever want to do with my money is systematically underweight these owner-operated companies.
2: Wow, fascinating. So, what effects do you think these price-insensitive buyers are having on the broader market, especially you know the top end
0: of it? Yeah, you know, I, I think there. Um, I mean, the market is basically this, the broad stock market. Uh, you know, passive flows have had a lot to do with you know the, the, the market performance, but it's also been you know not just passive. To me, it's it's price insensitive buying on all levels. So it's it's passive investing. It's also um, stock buybacks. You see, a company like GE who's bought back you know tens of billions of dollars of its own stock at mm. prices that are several hundred percent above its current price. Um, you know, stock buybacks are totally price insensitive also these days. And then you have mm. price insensitive buying of all kinds of assets on the part of central banks, whether it be the Bank of Japan, European Central Bank. And so price insensitive buying on all those levels have been really what's been when propping up the markets over the last several years.
1: Yeah. So, Jesse, I want to ask one more question about... Uh, ETFs and passive investing. But before I do, I want to pick up on something you just talked about there, about stock buybacks. So I think in one of your articles, you quoted the Bloomberg stat that over the last 20 years, between buybacks and takeovers, it's like $5.5 trillion worth of equity has left the stock market. Um, Why do you think this is important and what effect do you think it's had on uh, the market in the last 20 years?
0: Well, you know, there's a a lot of... um... Uh, claims, um, that, uh, that I've seen. I mean, I think the first person I think uh, I saw say it was Ray Dalio a few years ago that stock buybacks have been the single largest source of demand for equities over the past 10 years. And when you see that, yeah. that's, you know, $5 trillion worth of demand, that's, you know, pretty big deal. At the same time, you see volume across all of these exchanges has gone way down. So there's a lot less, uh, you know, buying and selling um, on the exchanges, and then a ton more buying on the part of uh, you know, buybacks. And I, and I really think, to me, that's uh, – maybe your listeners have seen the, the chart recently of the plunge in the smart money index. And I really think that's what's behind the plunge in the smart money index is real investors are selling – Uh, And and just to explain what the Smart Money Index is, it's essentially the difference between the opening hour of trading and the last hour of trading. So you have a lot of, um, if you have buying in the opening hour and selling in the the closing hour, the Smart Money Index is going to go down. And... Companies are prohibited from buying back stock either in the last half hour or last hour of trading. I'm not. I'm not sure which one. And All so, right. when we're when you see a lot of this net selling just happen at the end of the day, and you over you know it, it persists over longer periods of time, to me that's a sign that um, you know investors, you know real investors are are net sellers, and um, buybacks are just prohibited from from buying into that uh, supply. Uh, at the end of the day, so hmm. um, yeah, it's a really interesting phenomenon, and it really comes back to this corporate credit cycle too, that with interest rates rising, um, is another thing I think Ray Dalio talked about recently is it's been leveraged buying um, in hmm. in the stock market over the past few years that's been driving prices. So whether you have investors buying on margin or companies borrowing money to buy back stock, it's leveraged on both sides. And so, with rising interest rates now, um, we're, we're possibly starting to see some of that demand on both sides. On You know, uh, we saw margin debt drop pretty dramatically in October um, and stock buybacks are also waning um, and, and that could just be a function of the cost of that leverage going up. So um, it's just stuff to pay attention to.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Now to get back to the ATF question. one area of uh, passive investing that has interest us uh, is the liquidity risk. And every time we've had an ETF provider uh, on the show or someone who's uh, in support of them, they've told us that our concerns are misplaced. But but really, and we've never really got a satisfactory answer to it. So we're wondering if you can uh, give us your two cents. But the concern is really that given ETFs are open-ended, uh, if there's a panic selling of the ETFs, and then of the ETF units, uh, and then the market maker, the ETF provider is struggling to sell the underlying shares, but just because there's a, you know, 2008, 2009 like panic, wouldn't that create a liquidity risk for the ETFs? Is that, is our concern misplaced? Is that a, is that a real possibility?
0: Um, I think it's a possibility. I I think that we've, we've never seen, you know, the market's how the the markets would handle? I, I guess we have in in small doses. We've seen some flash crash, crashes over the past, um, you know, a few years. Whether it was you know August of 2015, I think was the last one where we really saw some problems in ETFs. They're very short term problems, and and you know, really, my, I'm not too worried about um, these these ETFs where the underlying products have a lot of liquidity, like you know, stocks. I think the, you know, where the the concerns are, are most acute are where you have a liquidity mismatch where, you know, whether it's buying a leveraged loan ETF, where, you know, uh, people don't even realize, I think sometimes trade settlement on a leveraged loan is like two weeks. And I think a lot of people buying corporate debt ETFs, junk bond ETFs, uh, have probably never traded a corporate bond in their lives. I mean, I, <laughs> I've actually tried to trade try and put put a an offer out for corporate bonds where you literally just put the offer out there, you know, like very close to, you know, at, at the market price, you put an offer out there to sell something and it just expires day after day if you just put the order up because there is no buyer in a normal market, in a normal healthy operating market, there's no buyer for that corporate bond. And so that's I'm I'm more worried about those those ETFs where there's a major mismatch in in liquidity. So you can buy and sell the corporate bond a corporate bond ETF, you know, all day long in nanoseconds, but the underlying bonds don't trade nearly as frequently. And so there's a, there's to me that's where I think there's a potential problem if you do see and we have been seeing some big selling in these um in these corporate bond ETFs. And, you know, it, it could eventually get to the point if the, the selling gets big enough um, where they just – and we we actually saw that with the mutual fund. I think it was a Third Avenue junk bond fund a couple in 2016, early 2016. And they had to shut the fund down and just put it into liquidation because they couldn't sell the underlying assets quickly enough to meet redemptions. So they had to – had to essentially bar, you know, redemptions for a period of time until they could liquidate over over time those underlying securities. So, I think as long as it, you know you're talking about ETFs that are covering very liquid markets, then I don't really have as much concern as as some of these other ones.
2: Was that satisf- satisfactory enough for you, Ren?
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> I guess I guess the the concern is more if the ETF provider has to wear. The losses, and then you know their Vanguard and stuff, they'll be fine. But some of the smaller ETF providers uh, that don't have a strong balance sheet—if they have to wear all these losses from the market collapsing and having to try and sell the underlying units—I guess that's where my concern is.
0: Yeah, and I and I do you know I I don't have enough expertise in the in the area to really I, I don't trade a lot of ETFs. But it is my understanding that um, it's a lot of algorithms that are arbitraging these things that that provide the liquidity for a lot of these ETFs. And, you know, if the algorithms kind of step away, um, you know, and who knows how they're programmed, but, uh, you know, they they could be programmed in in such a way that, you know, um, if losses accumulate to X amount, they just step away, then, yeah, liquidity for those markets could be could could evaporate. It, it's something that we've we've only seen in very, very small small doses, um, like I said in a couple of those flash crashes and and you saw some of those big major ETFs, you know, traded prices they should never have ever traded at. I mean, very, very far away from fair value. Um, and I, I believe they busted those trades and made everybody whole, you know, uh, after the fact. Um even the guys who've made huge profits you know, on taking advantage of those bad prices. Um, so yeah, I mean I, I, during during uh, an extended market decline, how they deal with that i i don't I don't know.
2: so Jesse, let's move away from equities and into another topic that you discuss quite often, and that being gold. You know we've previously heard you quote Ray Dalio if you don't own gold, you know neither history or economics. And you've recently written some articles titled The Perfect Storm for Gold Developing and Gold Fireworks on the Horizon. So I guess we haven't really seen a massive price movement in gold like we would have sort of expected. So are you still bullish on gold? And if so, um, why is that the case?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm very bullish on gold for for a number of reasons. I think, you know, my time frame for a lot of these things is is multi years. And so, um, you know, I I started buying gold in the middle of 2015 and the price is up about, you know, 20% since then. So it's it's hard okay. to complain that it, you know, yeah. Uh, it, but at the same time, it, it really hasn't, I, you know, I think gold could go to 15, 1600 over the next, you know, couple of years pretty easily. That's kind of what I'm, what I've been expecting and it hasn't happened yet. You know, it, it really what I, I, for a number of reasons, I, I like gold. One, I think it's, uh, the, the U S fiscal situation is, is deteriorating. We're seeing a, a widening, you know, fiscal deficit during an economic expansion. That's very rare. That's something that not doesn't normally happen. Usually the dollar is very highly correlated to the deficit too. So deficit widens, dollar goes down. And so how do you protect yourself when your federal government is behaving this way, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. It's, I want to own something other than the dollar. And then you go, okay, well, you know Japanese are are printing yen like crazy and the, and the European central bank's printing euros like crazy gold is you know uh, an alternative currency in my mind and so that's one of its values and um, as as an investment and and it's a currency that can't be you know really debased and and so to me that's why I want to own some in normal times but I do think um, it's important to own it now because of because of these these things, and and, and I I do think that what was it, twenty mid twenty sixteen when interest rates saw their lows was probably a, a generational low in interest rates, and so, if, uh, and in interest rates and, and in inflation, and so if interest rates and inflation have bottomed and are also now in an uptrend. Gold, it's, you know, probably a good idea to own gold um, in, in that type of an environment, too. So, um, you know, those are just some of the reasons why why I like it right now.
2: At the start of the year, Alec and I did an episode on bold predictions for 2018, and mine was that gold would hit 1500 by the end of the year. But it sounds like I'm a couple of years away from that. <laughs> <laughs> um, You're to quote you you say generally i believe it's important for investors to have significant exposure to real assets like gold at all times if only for the purposes of diversification practically speaking what do you classify as a significant exposure in percentage terms if there is if you can say
0: in in real assets so i wouldn't necessarily say you know this would be all gold right i mean real estate Treasury inflation, protected securities, commodities. I mean, gold is, is one of my favorite. Gold and real estate are probably my two favorites uh, out, out of those. But, you know, real estate is also very highly valued today, uh, along with everything else. So, you know, I would say that when you look at the great asset allocators, whether it's David Swenson, Yale Endowment to, you know, um, you know Rob Arnott or, you know, anybody else, uh, when you look at their kind of permanent portfolios, they all have, you know, something close 20 to 30% in real assets. Um, and that's something that, you know, is not in a 60-40 portfolio. And I really think that's that's the, the major missing component is people just focus on financial assets and then don't uh, and, and completely ignore real assets. And, and that's, you know, problematic. I would say, you know... Having a third of your assets in real assets, you know, is is not a not a bad thing by any means. Or even making an aggressive call. Now, I, I personally think it's time to be overweight real assets um, for these you know reasons I, I mentioned before. But uh, you know, so uh, you know, I I think Dalio said you know you have at least five percent of your portfolio in gold you know at any mm-hmm. given time, but it really comes back to somebody's risk tolerance, you know, too. Yeah. And and people say, well, do you want to own gold physical or do you want to own the miners, the mining stocks? And, you know, that also just comes back to your risk tolerance too because, you know, the mining stocks are a lot of times just a, a leveraged play on the gold price. Um, so, uh, you know, if you're a more aggressive investor, you might focus on the miners. You know, if you're more conservative, you might just focus on just, you know, a uh, gold ETF or something.
2: So speaking of ETF, two, sort of two-part question, What's your strategy buying into gold at the moment and going forward? And also for the beginner investor, what avenues are there to actually get access to gold uh, rather, other than going out and buying a nugget and putting it in a safe under the bed? So how can yeah. one get yeah. access to gold?
0: My my favorite vehicle right now for, for the majority of investors is... Um, I think it's called the Sprott Physical Gold and Silver Trust now. It used to be the central fund of Canada. And essentially, they just own uh, physical gold and silver. Um, But this is a closed-end fund, and it trades at about a 5% discount to the precious metals they have in storage. So it allows you to buy gold and silver at a 5% discount to the the market price, first of all. The other thing that's cool about this is Sprott, when they took over this fund, they added a redemption feature where you could actually convert your shares to bullion. So if you say, you know what, I'm worried about Sprott, I'm worried about whatever, I just want to own physical for some reason, you just go to Sprott and say, convert my shares to bullion and they will give you coins or you know whatever it is. And so wow. there's really n- zero reason. I don't know why somebody hasn't arbitraged this away, right? <laughs> Just go buy a bunch of yeah. shares and then say, now convert it to, to physical and I'll go sell the physical somewhere else and make the 5%. Nobody's, nobody's done that. But um, this is, a, this is a, a great opportunity, I think, for individual investors to to take advantage of a way to put, put some money in the portfolio into um, precious metals at a, at a good price. Hmm.
1: So, Jesse, we, we know we've taken a lot of your time and we're about to get to the uh, final three questions we end every interview with. But before we do, I want to ask one more question. Um, given uh, what's happened in crypto markets recently, what are your thoughts on crypto as an asset class? Is the, is the boom done or are we in the sort of uh, post-boom dog days before a recovery uh, a la tech in the mid-2000s?
0: Uh, gosh, you know, I, I've talked to, this is interesting, it was tw- a year ago, I talked to a few of my friends who had differing opinions on crypto, and I decided not to do uh, a podcast on the topic. I, I just couldn't wrap my head around dignifying it as an investment, <laughs> because it doesn't, it, it just doesn't seem like a valid investment vehicle to me, and I, I've really tried to, you know, understand it and and uh, look at you know the the uh, the merits of it as an investment, but I really just can't see it. I, I think you know, first of all, you have to you know be able to understand something in order to invest in it you know Warren Buffett has said there are a small number of companies he can understand as an investor and that limits his universe of things that are investable for him and so if that's the greatest investor of all time saying that there's a small number of companies you know that should tell you how many you and I are capable of actually analyzing and understanding and then to look at something like cryptocurrency and uh, can we really understand it and 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 then when people talk about the merits of it, you know, the, to me, the most glaring problem is, you know, they claim that it's uh, limited in supply, but we've seen so many forks. And so anybody can go create a Dogecoin or, you know, whatever else they want to create at any time. The idea that it's limited in the way that something like gold or real estate is, is absolutely asinine in my view so i I do think the the distributed ledger technology is very interesting for a number of reasons i really think it's going to be interesting in terms of what it does to the data economy uh and and possibly giving us ownership of our own data and how that affects big companies i don't know but um i think that's very very interesting but i don't think there really need to be any uh cryptocurrencies supporting that kind of technology. And so, yeah, yeah to me, it's not something that um, can be really considered an investment.
1: Yeah, fair enough. I think given the, the crash that we've had this year, I think uh, you've been proven right. Uh, <laughs> so, look, we, uh, thanks for your time today, Jesse. Every interview, we end with three wrap-up questions. So, the first one is, what books do you consider must-reads?
0: Well, I mentioned the Jesse Livermore book before, and I, I just found the title of it. It's Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. It's a classic. Paul Tudor Jones makes everyone who goes and works at his firm read this book. Also, there was a newer version of a Jesse Livermore um, biography. I think it was Jesse Livermore Boy Plunger came out, which is more interesting, a more realistic view of his life, um, if, for those that are interested. Um, I think Reminiscence of a Stock Operator is fantastic. The Market Wizards and the New Market Wizards books are terrific. I think people read those and you can see a a wide variety of investment disciplines and and kind of start to realize which ones kind of appeal more to you. Then I think Howard Marks, The Most Important Thing, is uh, another just must-read for investors.
2: We've had, I think, four or five people now recommend uh, Reminiscence of a Stock Operator, and we we have a book club each month. So I think, Ren, uh, Alec, we need to uh, put that on the list for next month because it's been so recommended.
0: Yeah, definitely.
2: Jesse, number two, what is your go-to source for investing information?
0: Well, you know, I've been really uh, critical of social media and stuff over the last year or two years, Um, but Twitter is... For me, I follow you know just under a hundred accounts there, and for me, it's invaluable um, mm-hmm. to have you know uh, a number of people like that that I respect and um, are sharing their views on a regular basis, sharing what they're reading. To me, that is my absolute go-to for for uh, just seeing what people are reading um, and what people are thinking about what they're reading.
1: Yeah, I think um, if our listeners out there have Twitter, I think uh, your account, is it at Jesse Felder? That's it, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great follow as well. I think um, reading what you're reading is definitely added value for uh, Bryce and I. So, final question. If you can go back to uh, your younger days when you were, you know, paper trading and looking at uh, Barron's every Saturday, what advice (laughs) would you give your younger self when you were just starting out as an investor?
0: Well, you know, I, I... there's a, a quote from the Market Wizard's book, and I can't remember who said it or, you know, where it came from, but they said, you really need to look at all of your mistakes in the markets as tuition at the school of trading or tuition is at the school of investing. And so I really wouldn't take back any of my mistakes or try and avoid any of them because I really do feel like it sometimes takes making a major mistake to feel enough pain to prevent you from making that mistake again in the future it's really hard to learn from other people's mistakes but i I think the advice that i would give myself and this is the advice i give young people getting into the businesses if you're interested in in learning and getting into the the finance industry um, find somebody who you really do admire like i said earlier both you know, professionally and, you know, from a personal standpoint and just see if you can go to work for that person, do whatever it takes to go work for that person. Um, And that's going to be far more valuable than, than just, you know, getting a job at any old firm or even, you know, one of the big firms like I did um, is, you know, uh, take some time to figure out and find somebody that you admire and then, and then uh, um, try and go, you know learn directly from them because you'll you'll learn a ton more and and you'll I think feel a lot more fulfilled in the process.
2: Yeah, great piece of advice speaking of admiration, um, fanboying quite hard over here at the moment, having the opportunity to speak with you Jesse. so it's been a fantastic start to a Saturday morning for us. really appreciate you uh, giving us your time and and coming on the show. I know as I said at the start, we've been following you for a while now and can really resonate with the lot of your ideas and and thoughts on the market and uh you know i hope our listeners have got a lot out of the interview today because i know alec and i certainly have so just a massive thanks for all our listeners jesse runs uh the blog the felder report which is worthwhile signing up to and also has a podcast super investors and the art of worldly wisdom also uh worth a listen for our listeners jesse where can we find you on social media just on twitter or anywhere else
0: Really just on Twitter, yeah. No, I deleted my Facebook and Instagram accounts a while ago. Actually, I don't even have a smartphone or an iPad or anymore. I'm, you know, Maybe I'm paranoid, but I got rid of a lot of that stuff.
2: <laughs> wow. So what do you do? Just the, just the laptop and away you go.
0: Yeah, the laptop and a landline. I'm old school now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, great. That's good. Well, unless you have any other final questions, Ren, uh, we'll wrap it up there. Do you have anything you want to add? No, I think
1: just a massive thanks, Jesse, for giving us your time and uh, sharing some of your thoughts.
0: Well, th- you know, thank you guys so much for inviting me. I'm, I'm, um, it was my honor to to do this, and I want to wish you guys a lot of luck. It, it sounds like you guys are doing a, a good thing, and I, I, I hope you guys have a lot of success in in helping um, your audience um, all become, you know, better investors and learn and progress and, and all that. So, thank you.
1: Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice
0: only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how they pertain to your individual situation.